met this six-year-old child in this blank, pale, emotionless face. The blackest eyes, the devil's eyes. You take the red pill, you stay in Wonderland, and I show you how deep the rabbit hole goes. episode of Subconscious Realms. I'm your host, General Lee. And for tonight, we are joined by one of our extraordinary returning guests who um, previously unleashed two mind-melting episodes on the Tantric Pantheon. Uh, if you haven't had the opportunity to have a listen to those, you need to check them out. They are episode 200, the introduction to the Tantric Pantheon, and episode 207, um, the Mahavidya. Uh, I can only imagine part three this series will only get even weirder and wilder. It's exactly what we need. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Jim the Ninja. Now then, Jim, mate. <laughs> Hi, General Lee. How are you? Oh, I'm good, mate. But first of all, apologies um, if I sound a bit ropey. This was a bit of fun, mate, from uh, A fever. Or, or, we're being sprayed and the deep state have... Uh, Finally, track me down. <laughs> Let's call it a bit of both. Let's call it both things. <laughs> it could be, mate. Well, we know. <laughs> I mean, well, mate, you've been good. I've been really good. You know, it just every day or every moment you think that you're like doing what you're supposed to be doing, and then the universe sends you a sign that you need to change it up. That's what happens. Oh. So I'm just like rolling with it, and I'm yeah. being flexible. <laughs> Sound, mate. Sound. As uh, long as you got Jig. But, um, yeah, we was actually we was meant to do a recording last Sunday, wasn't we? But that didn't, um, didn't work out. But we're here now, mate. Uh, I can't wait until we speak about this. Well, it was uh, really interesting because last Sunday was actually Dakini Day. Like, if you're a Tibetan uh, Buddhist, you get, like, for me, I get the notification on my phone Oh, it's today is today is the day for a Dakini Puja or Dakini Tsok, which is like a fest, um, a feast. So you have to make feast. little kotorma. Yeah, sometimes you, fe- well, so what you do in a sock, that's what it's called, sock, T-S-O-K, you make torma cakes of different shapes, but usually they're very, well, each deity has their own shapes and each deity has their own colors and things. So you make these cakes basically and you offer it to them and you do a specific liturgical um like it's like a mass and you do a prayer and you offer all this different food um you know because in buddhism we do not do pashubali which is what is animal sacrifice so we don't really do that although obviously that does warrant a discussion because it's a very hot topic but in general i don't really do that 
I mean, I don't do it at all, but. Um, oh, you don't eat meat. Do you not eat meat? I do eat meat. So oh, this okay. is the thing. There is definitely like a misconception of how the nonviolence, the himsa aspect is practiced. Yeah. And, right. you know, animal, like the way they do Bali in India or Nepal, which Nepal is more popular. India is going undergoing something called a Sanskritization or Krishnava vacation because the majority religion, although in India is Hindu, they belong to the the Krishna sect is the most popular. So right, like right, ISKCON, okay. people kind of are familiar with ISKCON or the Hare Krishnas. That is the most popular sect, then followed by yeah. Vishnu. And Vishnu does have tantric elements. So again, I just, uh, from the last episode, I didn't want to make it seem like Vishnu doesn't matter. Vishnu really does matter, but his forms do not comprise the inner mandala. His different forms, his 10 forms, but he actually has many more forms because Vishnu is really right. the only God that dies. So he dies and in the Mahabharata, he dies, he dies in all his stories. But what happens really is that he reincarnates. So every reincarnation is an avatar. Every avatar right. serves a specific function to quell a specific asura or anti-God. And so he has very ferocious, some of his avatars are extremely ferocious. And you see a lot of the forms replicated in Tantric Buddhism. So one of the most popular Buddhist deities is a deity called Hayagriva. So Hayagriva is also an avatar of Vishnu, but they're not the same character. They right. have a dip, like they have a, there's a reason in the Buddhist story that he's not the same. So it's not just like the Buddhists like borrowing or like seeing the form of, there's actually like a tantric reason why the Buddhist deity takes the same form. But in general, his forms are viras, which means the heroic, like people are heroes, excuse me. So yeah. you need to have heroes are generally protector deities but they also can be Ishta Devadas in Buddhism. But in Hindu Tantra, Viras are the, there's two layers of heroes. There's the worldly heroes, the Viras, and then there's the Mahaviras. So Vishnu's avatars generally comprise that inner circle of the mandala, if you're thinking of the mandala as the city formulation or the, car, or the cemetery ground formulation. Because both of those are actually different kinds of ideas, but really, the mandala is the mandala. So however you construct it, there's always going to be a ring of heroes and a ring of greater heroes. Right. Okay. Uh, Jay, Jay, sorry, just, just going back on what you said about animal sacrifice. Uh, when the animal is sacrificed, will they eat it? So this is really interesting, and I'm glad you asked. So yes, almost always in regular temple sacrifice, you would definitely, the temple would, or excuse me, the sacrifice would be used to make prasad, which is the offering that is first for the deity and then for the practitioners. But only after it's been offered to the deity is the offer, right. is it then eaten by practitioners. However, because it's Tantra and Tantra tends to be conceived of as transgressive, there are a number of saints who will, who would live at the, specific Shakti Peets, as we talked about the last episode in part two, 
the temples that the pieces, the different 51 pieces of the original goddess landed on earth after she was dismembered. And on those 51 places, different temples were formed and they became different manifestations of the whole goddess. Right. So Tara, everybody knows Tara, green Tara from Buddhism or Tarani, that's her name in uh, Hinduism. She's very popular in West Bengal. She's probably, just to talk a little practical magic, because I know everybody likes that. I like that when other people talk about it. She is probably the easiest in terms of access. Like if you're, if you don't know anything about like Hindu Tantra or the Vedas or Tantric Buddhism, she is the go-to because she represents something very interesting, but actually I won't get into her now because we're going to actually do her sphere and it's a little higher up the tree. Oh, nice. I just want to say that, oh, so back to animal sacrifice, her temple or her Shakti Pete, it's called Tara Pete, but there are actually multiple Tara temples in uh, Orissa, in West Bengal, in Bangladesh, although I don't know if people still pray to the one in Bangladesh because Bangladesh is like majority Muslim. Uh, There's also used to be some in Pakistan and there was, and there's still some in Tibet and Sikkim and all those other smaller kind of kingdoms in that area, Himalayan region. They do practice a lot of animal sacrifice. It, usually it's assigned um, Tuesdays and Fridays. So they can assign, yeah, because the, you know, we always make a big deal about Saturn and Saturdays being our, for Western magicians, that's kind of the big wrathful day. But really in Tantra, your timing of the evening star of Mars, so the the evening of Mars and the evening star of Venus, which is the, obviously the evening of Venus, those are the most powerful times to access the wrathful powers in the tantric conception. Right, okay. So generally they'll time the sacrifice periods for those and then obviously using um, the general Vedic lunar calendar but then there's also different local calendars and also there's a tantric calendar. So yeah. depending, yeah. go, sorry, go ahead. Sorry, man, I was just going to ask, is there like a specific uh, set time of the day as well that um, this goes on? Well, so just like in Western magic, they have planetary hours assigned to every hour with the addition of two additional planets, which is the dragon planets, Rahu and Ketu. The dragon so, planets. so you have the seven luminaries plus Rahu Ketu. So plus the shadow planets. So sometimes it depends. So I will give a really good example that I'm actually personally familiar with. So there's this who is not, she's not a Mahavidya, but she can be. So she can be included in the grouping. And in sometimes in some of the tantras, she is. And she's a very, very important tantra goddess. Her name's Varahi. And so I think last Varahi. time I just read Varahi. So it means uh, one of her other names is Varahamuki. So it means the boar headed goddess. So she has the head of a wild sow. And there are varying depictions of how ferocious the pig's head is. Sometimes the pig's head is just a small 
ear, like a sow's ear, out of the left hand of or the left hand of her face, the left side. Sometimes she has a full-on wild sow's head that's like screeching, covered in blood, very ferocious. She's a almost entirely a left-handed goddess. So you do when you do with so in Nepal, they have a specific island. They have this little island in the middle of the Kathmandu Valley. And then they have this pagoda, which is also a nighttime temple. So why it's a nighttime temple is it's only open at night because you only access that goddess at night. However, I have seen Buddhist monks on YouTube in India going into another famous Varahi temple in Orissa. So I, like everything in Tantra, there are many paradoxes and contradictions. So I'm just going to present one side of the story, but there's obviously always many. So they do time it for midnight. Sometimes they start sacrifice at 9 p.m. Sometimes they will go much later and it will be midnight. Sometimes it'll be 3 p.m. So you can see there's like a, a parallel between like European witching hours and what is considered to be potent moments in Tantra. Yeah. And generally, sacrifice is a goat, a pig, or a rooster. Especially for the goddesses, they only ever take male animals. And in, yes, it is actually, and usually black, usually black animals too. Sorry, is there a specific reason for? Is there a specific reason for um, only uh, accepting male sacrifice? I mean, I think it's the logical, you know, the logical conclusion is that they're female powers. Yeah. They, they prefer, they need a male energy to activate. I think that's a good way to understand. They just require that because this is the saying in Tantra is that um, Shiva without Shakti is Shava. So the male without the female is a corpse. But, and blood, remember, blood is also a major component of the five M's. So in Indian Tantra, there's the five M's. You need those five elements to practice true Vamacharya, left-handed path. To do a full puja to a goddess like Varahi, who's also a Buddhist goddess, perhaps a Buddhist goddess before a Hindu goddess, but that's a whole discussion. But she requires, like some goddesses just require it. It's just a part of the function now you can use there are kinds different kinds of pumpkins there are different kinds of fruits that are sometimes used as replacement and obviously in buddhism we also use the cakes so we will shape our cakes like animals yeah like the tormic the buckwheat cakes so we will shape them like animals and then sometimes what happens is in very wrathful buddhist pujas you will you will do a ritual sacrifice of the animal cake. Does that make sense? Yeah, this um, it seems a little bit. It's like one end is like an actual living creature was living, and then the other is nothing at all. But it does have it does have the nectar pills. So, oh, wow, those okay. cakes you would put in one of those homeopathic pills that are blessed and prayed over and, you know, made very special. And they're little pieces of 
maybe from the cemetery, maybe their little corpse um, bones or something. They're just something wrathful. And it's all the nectars and they make them, it's a specific recipe. There's many recipes, but you know, they follow a a ritual pattern. So there is an element of wrathfulness, but you're right. It is more of an internal sacrifice. Right, okay. But in uh, Nepalese Hinduism specifically, which they are very syncretic too. That's really important to understand about Nepal. Nepal is probably, even more than India, the country that really preserved Tantra. So it really, that is really the heart of Tantra. Maybe not originally, but obviously Nepal has played a major um, component in the transmission of Buddhism and Tantra to East Asia and to Tibet and to Bhutan. So the, and there are still syncretic Hindu Buddhists. They're called Nuwaris. That's an ethnic group. But they preserve a lot of syncretic, very wrathful practices that don't really exist in the West at all. Like people would not be familiar with them at all. I wouldn't even be familiar with some of the practices, many of the practices. Also, so, like, does that does that upskill? It's, you know, this is the thing, and like we talked about a little bit of this last time. Tantra didn't start out as a monk's path. Tantra is a householder's path. And by householder, I mean someone that works outside the home, someone that has a family, usually like it's a it's a man and a wife and then a kid or two kids or whatever. He has like a house like he's like a worldly person. He has everything about him is normal from the exterior. But he has this specific spiritual practice that he practices internally and secretly. But it's not. um transgressive in the sense that he is not he's doing it to further his own moksha or to climb the tree or to gain a sita or to any any of those things he can, he can have many reasons for doing the wrathful practices but really it begins in the house that's why malkuth that's why i signed malkuth to bunishvari because she is the tantric householder and the every one of the 10 is not just an external goddess, but they are also internal goddesses in the sense that they represent a, a specific kinds of life of the tantrika, of the upasaka, of the person who is the viras. Because we each need to be the hero of the path. That's a very important concept. So as we climb the tree, we take on qualities from each goddess, or we embody qualities from each goddess. So if Bunishvari is Malkuth and she's the starting point, well, she is the bride. She is the one who births us into creation. She is the one who assigns um, meaning to objects through practice. So we kind of went over her last time, but I missed a really important part. And I just want to clear that up is that Bunishvari is time. She is time as space. Time as space. like every, as we've said, every episode, every Mahavidya represents a kind of time. This okay. really comes from the Iranians and perhaps also from Kashmir. Kashmir is extremely important in the history of Tantra. So really there was this Aristotelian dialectic that entered Iran in like the first to third century. From that exact period of time, 
all of these incredible texts were produced, like the even like the Talmud, the some of the Zoroastrian texts were codified for the first time. We have all the sutras are being written in northern India and Pakistan. So we just have this incredible production of texts because of this Aristotelian idea of assigning different qualities to God. So Zoroastrianism, which we always kind of have to refer back to as it's kind of the OG, and it's very easy to understand the axis. So they have obviously God Jervin, who's God time, but they also ass- they assigned Jervin's wife the role of space. But sometimes they also assigned Eremon, who is the son of Jervin, space. I was just going to mention Eremon, and I was going to ask you, mate, is there any co- a connection to Eremon and the uh, the Tantric Pantheon specifically. Is I mean, absolutely. Equi- is there an equivalent God? So, as we talked about in the both the first and second, the closest equivalent is Vishnu. Vishnu. That's not my interpretation. That is an Indian interpretation. Okay. But they do not assign. This is the thing that made Iranian um, theology interesting or makes it very dynamic compared to some of the other theologies happening in Central Asia at the same time is that they did not assign good or evil qualities to Ahura Mazda, the main god, or Jervin, who came later. So they would say, okay, God is light, God is time, God is space, God is, but God is always good. So no matter what kind of qualities they would assign to God, he would always remain good. Yeah. So every manifestation that he would take or every phenomenal um, happening that would, you know, like it, when it rained, when it did, if they assigned things as things to God, they always made sure it was good. It was never, they never assigned negative qualities to God. And in the Zoroastrian story, what produced evil in the world was God was performing a yajna. But he wasn't performing a yajna, which is the Vedic fire sacrifice. So everybody in, you know, everybody in the conspiracy world and the occult world is probably familiar with the idea of the Scythians and the horse sacrifices. So that's what a yajna is. It's basically like a a sacrifice done in a, a clockwise manner. It's seven horses. It's seven elephants. It's all these different things. They would burn the bodies. I mean, it, it happens. It happened in Abrahamic religions as well. But really, the Zoroastrians really were in. I mean, that's who developed it. That's where, right? That's where the Vedas really come from. Was the Indo-Aryan settlers or people who, you know, like the people who arrived yeah. in northern India. So they brought the Yajna with them. For a long time, that was the practice. But as I said in the second episode, there was a mass rejection of the yajna. There was a mass rejection of this idea of constantly performing these blood and animal sacrifices in the fire. Because the fire, this is really important for Western magicians. The fire is assigned a god, so it's Agni in the Vedas. He, it's not fire, though. It's not like a god of fire. It's not a phenomenological God. It's a God who is the energy of the universe. So he's like the portal. So by burning something, you are transmuting the matter 
into something that the gods can consume. So I guess the, the fire will be like the, the core of, of everything. Is that, is that what you said? That was correct. I mean, it's a very, it's one of the most important elements. And you still see them in Azerbaijan and Armenia. They have those Yajna temples, or they'll have the Zoroastrian living flame temples. And there's actually even one in India, it's called the Jawalamukhi temple, where there's a living flame in a mountain. And it's considered the tongue of the goddess. So when Shakti got dismembered, again by Vishnu, she fell to the earth. So her tongue fell on this one mountain. There's a living flame there. They built a temple over it. And voila. <laughs> that was crazy, mate, wasn't it? It is. And is every, uh, it every really is fascinating. No, it's super fascinating. And yeah. honestly, all the... And every peat, so every Shakti peat that exists, there are actually 108. I know I said there are 51. 51 is the traditional tantric amount, is the number that is given in the older tantras. Now, of course, what happens is different temples become a, like, some temples are really old and like maybe there's a tribal element and they've practiced the same thing for 2000 years. So yes, the place becomes very powerful. Or there's this other concept which happens at the Tara Temple, and people may be surprised to know this, but the Tara Temple is situated on what is called the Mahashmashana. So this is really cool. I think you'll like this. So if you remember episode two, we talked a little bit about how the Mahashmashana is the tantra, one of the two tantric conceptions of reality. So everywhere we live is or on earth what we experience is only partly real. But the real reality or the underlying reality is the great carnal ground, the great cremation ground of the world. In ancient India, they would have these huge, and Tibet as well, they would have these, and China actually at the same time, they had these huge areas where they would perform ritual cremations for just like everyday villagers, city people, whomever, and they would be very, very busy. And you can still see it today. They happen at the Varanasi Ghats. They still do the cremation into the Ganges River. Oh, so they still practice They still do the Smashana. And at Tara in West Bengal, that is a Mahashmashana because that means they've performed over 108,000 cremations. Now, that is kind of like just a magic number, but it's been around for like four or five hundred years at least so probably they performed millions of cremations so at least probably at least right so the thinking is is once you've performed so many cremations and there are many famous saints who come from that temple so and that's considered an extremely powerful shakti peat one of the most powerful and it's actually where the third eye of tara fell onto the ground so i am i promise i am making a point about animal sacrifice i'm gonna bring it full circle but yes nice one mate. but but sometimes when people are praying in that cremation ground because the cremation ground is very busy at night it's not like this like haunted out of the way place now 300 years yeah. ago it probably was a very dangerous place to be 
I mean, you have snakes, you have dogs, you have wolves, you have thieves, you have all these weird tantric guys doing little cremation fires. Like it was probably not a safe place. But now it's very busy. It's kind of has a market, like a night market atmosphere. But originally you'd have to think it was very dark. There's no, there was no electricity. There's still not electricity on the whole cremation ground. And there are no, many... you know, Jim, right? it, Sorry, go ahead. The thing you just mentioned then, no, no electricity. You think at this day and age, no electricity. Just don't think that that would be possible. But I guess just there's numerous well, places yeah. where there's no electricity. Just imagine a rural part of India that is like as it was like 200 years ago. Right. So there are things there's they have like their tuk tuks and their like taxis and the music and and the you know like Christmas lights. They love that. But I bet they have nice food as well, mate. I mean, you know, so I just think that it's and they have cell phones and everything. So they it's like some things have made their way into the modern world, right? And some things have yeah. made their way into the temple grounds. But the reality is is that it's still a pretty wrathful place. I mean, yeah. every ground, every piece of ground you touch has been a place where a body has burned. It so, sounds bad to me. It is pretty amazing, honestly. Like, yeah. it's one of the most incredible places, I think. But some people don't like that one, that Terapeath Temple, the major Terapeath Temple. There are, because as I said, there are multiple ones. Because yeah. one of the saints actually tuned down the bija mantra of that particular place so tara is actually even though she is the mother she is the mother tara is the mother i know people will think it's durga or will think it's another of the goddesses or Bhuneshwari, but really it's tara is the mother okay so she's extremely ferocious her original form her og form is just extremely ferocious Okay, it's it's more than most people can take. And I know people are thinking, oh, okay, like I pray to this or do this or, yeah, I can do it. I'm like very wrathful. Like, no, it's really, it's so ferocious that 99.999% of people could not handle it because one of the reasons we practice is to build what we call our internal Shakti. So our power in ourselves. Yeah. Our capacity as well as our potential power. So like MP for an RPG character, it's exactly the same, except you can grow it. But at the same time, we're still limited by the amounts that we're born with because of karma. I mean, there's a whole complicated reason why, but that's generally a good way to understand karma. So her power is just way too much for most people. So they did tune down the mantra that they use to access her. However, if you go there, they have a living flame that they use specifically to start the fire of the corpse, like to start the corpse fire. Yeah. That is the manifestation of Tara. So Tara becomes the star, which is, that's what her name means. The star, but she becomes the, the cremation ground star. So the fire that exists in the center of the cremation ground, the light it gives off the illumination of all the things in the cremation ground that you can see from the light, that is Tara. She is the light, the sound, and the conscious mind perceiving her. 
So that's, and, and imagine it because the, you know, a fire, um, excuse me, a body is quite messy when it burns. The eyeballs pop, the brain pops. I mean, there's stuff that happens. So different, yeah, at different, at different moments in the cremation process or in the tantric ritual process, different goddesses may emerge or different because I said the Mahavijas are all aspects of time, but you could yeah. say that they're all aspects of a corpse too, like the time of a corpse to ash. You could count all the Mahavijas in that, in that period of time in a whole puja you could say the fire is tara but then the ash is dumavati who is the goddess of ash and smoke you could also say the jackals and the wolves that appear in the cremation ground that's kali you could also say the tantrika the people that are performing the pujas or doing their mantras or doing their rosary practice, those people yeah. are by Rabi. The people that come from outside, like a, a different town or whatever, and they make a pilgrimage to the temple, those people are excuse me, Bhuvaneshwari. So every moment in time represents, can be also explained in the whole corpse process. You know, so it's, it's, it really is. It, it, it's crazy, isn't it? How, how all all those different elements come together. I like was just explained. About that. <laughs> I know, and that is really important to understand. Is that some of the goddesses are extremely wrathful, and they really yeah. exist in the cremation ground, but some don't. So that's also important to understand where they exist in the reality. Yeah, I get you, mate. Because yeah, some are so. for, you know, you have three goddesses in particular who are not, do not appear in the cremation ground generally. I mean, they can do whatever they want. They, they're beyond convention, all of them. And they yeah. all essentially are one goddess. They're just different kinds of forms, if you want to think of yes. it like that. Uh, I mean, I tend to think of it, I know this is probably challenging for some people. But it's really, it's not really polytheism. It's really, um, it's monistic. It's really this idea of the goddesses merging into the singular godhead. And yeah. depending on your perspective, it's either Shiva or it's Shakti herself. Or if you're Buddhist like me, it's Shakti, but it's the higher Shakti. It's the goddess above the goddess. Or it's the five Buddhas, which is another concept in Buddhism. So, you know, it's just, but it's important to understand that she isn't really, she is multiple, but she's really one. Yeah. So it's sometimes, so, sorry, go ahead. It's, so, it's so vast, it? there's just so much going on. I mean, that's it, the thing it, with yeah. Tantra. It's like every... Incredible, mate. It really is. I mean, it's the Lotus. Yeah. That's how you have to think of it. It's the Lotus. And every conversation that you and I have every day, it presents a new aspect of the Lotus. And everything we see that is challenging or causes us to meditate upon one of the conceptualizations or contexts of the goddess makes us understand the universe and ourselves better. That's kind of the point. Yeah. It's the theological process of assigning different qualities to the to god but then also 
delimiting those qualities, like taking them away and seeing what's left. Because just like with the metaphor of the corpse, the corpse is a great fuel for prayers. Like you can use that corpse fire, the fire that comes directly from the body. And people will use that in a puja. And that's extremely powerful, like extremely powerful. But the corpse doesn't last forever. The corpse eventually turns into ash, turns into the time of silence, turns into the morning, turns into the dusk. So just like with that, we, ha- we kind of build God up into everything. And then yeah. we kind of, when we hit those, that sphere of Dumavati, she, God kind of becomes nothing. And then once we get to the Kether or above Kether, things start to get really dynamic. But it takes us a lot of a lot to get there. It takes a lot of energy. And that's partly to bring it back around to the Bali and the animal sacrifice question. That's partly why blood is used is because it's considered to be just a very powerful vector to be able to get there there. But yeah, I'm, I'm presuming that that this is like, uh, like you just said, um, sort of like very advanced. So this is the thing: is that every there are different temples that do that are tantric temples or are mahavijas, like the goddesses from of the ten. So there are go- there are temples that do not practice animal sacrifice. Like one of the famous Kali uh, temples in Calcutta. That's one of the most famous ones, in fact. They do not do animal sacrifice. And the priests who now run that temple usually... So tantric temples are usually not run by Brahmins. Tantric temples are usually run by householders or family lineages. So they're not Vedic priests. Right, so that that ties things into what you said previously about it being like household kind of thing exactly exactly so but what has happened in the last hundred years is the temples have reverted because the temples make a lot of money and i'm not trying to put a gross context to a spiritual thing but i just want to give it you know it's just the reality yeah temples make a ton of money the state loves money therefore does it it work like you know like, you know, the last time I went to the church, it was a christening at a Catholic church at Winnick. And right, the, um, is it the pissing balls while they bring round on the call asking for money? So what people do sometimes, especially like, because you have to think like people who worship at the temples, they're not all tantrics. They might just right. have like a very basic understanding. And we have to talk about that too. It's bhakti, which is devotional love to the deity. That's very important actually. And a okay. lot of people, so they will have that. And what they will do is they will pin money to the sari of the goddess or to Bhairav, the, the Shiva who appears in the world in the form of a, a usually a little boy who rides a black dog. So they Let's will pay. Rise of Black Dog. That's, uh, I, what's the reason for that, mate? Or is, is that just something more? Well, that's a really interesting. I was going to tell his story, but he, so he is the, so in a way, the 10 goddesses narrate the story of the one goddess, right? So we yeah. start from Bhunavishwari, 
who's married to Shiva, the supernal godhead. So she's married to Shiva. She's not really married to Bhairava. She, but however, because Shiva's the godhead, she can only keep him here for a moment. So he marries her, they have their children, and then he goes back to heaven or goes back to the godhead. He returns upwards. So her journey is to get back to him. So every sphere that she enters, every form that she takes, she has to create a new Bhairava or a new, not create a new Bhairava, but she has to, he manifests in a different way for each different wife. If you want to think of it like that. So the black, the because like I said, I think it was in the second or the first episode, Tara, the mother, loves Shiva when he's the child. Many of the goddesses want Shiva like the, okay, so Bhairavi, for instance, loves Shiva when he's like the Tantrika who lives in the cremation ground and he's just doing his practices and he's learning and he's surrounded by ghosts and demons and wolves and jackals, okay? She, she loves to have sex with him in those moments. Some of the other goddesses need him to manifest as a child in order to make them maternal. So they don't just destroy the person who's summoning them or invoking them or doing the sadhana. So he is smart in that way because he represents kind of the, like what we said last time, the guru, he represents the teacher, the universal teacher. He is the, not Shiva, but Bhairava is the universal guru. So that's why a lot of people say, oh, if you don't have a guru, start with uh, Batuk Bhairava, which is the little boy riding the black dog. He will bring you to the goddess in a way that is that she will not react negatively to you. He's also very eminent. He's one of the few forms of Shiva that will appear very readily in the world. So he's actually really great for... He is wrathful, though. I don't want to, like, make it sound like he's, like, he's fun. I mean, he's, if you want to say he's kind of like Allegua, or he's maybe, like, um, when Allegua has seven from Santeria, he has seven, seven paths, sometimes they say. And he appears as a child in one of the paths, and people will leave him toys and that kind of stuff. So usually for a Batuk Bhairav, he he takes he also takes the five m's so meat uh, marijuana it's not called marijuana in in tantra i just want to point that out but it, it really that's what the secret meaning is so yeah. i'm just going to cut through the bullshit and call it what it is and they do smoke it quite a lot over there don't they it's considered to be it's it's you know it's the most important one of the most important herbs one of the most yeah. important sacramentals. Yeah, um, I think you might know a little bit about this. Um, you know, I, I forget what it was I read about it. It was like like thousands of years ago, but there was a famine in, in, in the Indian region, and uh, you know, no food. They actually uh, used cannabis as um, nutrients. Is that, is that something you're familiar with? Like creation, like bang lassi and stuff like that? Oh, yeah. Like, I know what bang lassi is. I've drank a couple of them in my time. Oh, it's lassi, that stuff, funny. <laughs> so, you know, that is Shiva's, one of Shiva's plants. Shiva has three plants or three trees. 
That's one of them. However, in every tantric temple that accepts, usually the ones that accept animal sacrifice, like I said, some of them don't because of the priests change, like the rules, the Shastra. So the Shastras are texts that um, outline the rules of ritual worship. So there are Vedic Shastras, there are Tantric Shastras, there are Shakti Shastra, Shastras, and Shiva. They're all different kinds. So really, so the ones that are accepting of the five M's, that's the important concept for people to remember, those temples usually will always have bang or hashish or different things like, but that you can offer them to the goddesses and specific goddesses love that stuff. Like Dumavati, she hashish is her thing. So that's one of her things that she loves in particular and Shiva as well. So every form of Shiva will accept that in all forms of Bhairava will also accept that. And there are eight forms of Bhairava specifically, but he also takes another, he kind of expands outwards as well. So he is Shiva. So he's the ninth. He's Shiva Bhairava. He, so he's the central deity. And because of certain things happening, he expands outward into the mandala and creates eight more of himself. So those are called the Ashta Bhairava, who are the eight Bhairavas. So they're still Shiva, but they're not Shiva. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. So when he expands outward, they all become mass, all are all time lords. So in Buddhism, this is a really important concept. And we have, the idea of Bhairava in, in uh, Tantric Buddhism as well. And the Bhairavs are usually assigned as Mahaviras, so greater heroes. But the Time Lords are Mahakals or Mahakalas, which is another epitaph or another title for Shiva. They are actually assigned a lesser position in the mandala, a very important position. I'm not saying they're not important. They're very important. But they're just assigned oh, just a... A yeah, worldly not, not important. There's no they they the mandala cannot be completed without them in Buddhism. You must have a Mahakala in the mandala. Must must have. So a time lord must be present in every mandala of every deity. Okay. But he is rarely the central figure. So this is what confuses, I think, people who approach tantric buddhism who know a lot about maybe hinduism or tantric hinduism yeah they approach it and they look and they say okay well where is the one-to-one -one? buddhism has a extra layer that's a good way to understand so an extra layer so if you consider kether as the end point of the tree then that's that's perfectly fine way to describe tantric hinduism okay you can say kether is the godhead or the point of ejection buddhism actually posits an entirely a third pillar like a third part of the tree that is above kether that is ruled by the buddhas so mahakala or the time lord shiva can only take you so far He's a very important deity. And in Buddhism, there are many forms of Mahakala. Every school has a very important form that is the protector. And he is considered the 
king of all the worldly protectors. So in the Sanskrit classification and in the Buddhist classification more specifically, he is assigned uh, enlightened status, but he's still a worldly deity. Which means that he can grant you things in an enlightened way, meaning that he changes your karma. He improves your lived karma and your future karma to get to the higher planes or the higher positions on the on the tree. But he is not a source of refuge in and of himself, meaning he is a Buddha, but he is not one of the higher Buddhas. Does yeah. that make sense? I know that's yeah, a little... Uh complicated yeah it is it's, excuse me sorry it's all complicated mate but you are the way you're um explaining it it's brilliant Jim. It really well thank is. you so much right? well you uh, know this means this yeah well this there is one thing i need to ask you mate sorry no go for it just right okay um what would you say your opinion on why there is um, a statue of Lord Shiva at Sun. Okay, so we talked a little bit about this last time. And this, I'll just be really concise with my answer. I think that Mahakala, which means Time Lord, I think they see the equivalency to Jervan, also the Lord of Time, who some, a faction of the elite or the cults or whatever you want to call them, the globalists, whatever. Yeah. The deep they state. Believe, the deep state. They believe... <laughs> no, that's what it is. I mean, they believe... Yeah. A, a faction of them believe that Jervin or Mahakala is the end point and that it is their divine role to destroy or maybe invoke him to destroy the world. Because I personally believe that they are trying to control the next aeon. So in Hinduism, this is a really interesting conversation. The next aeon after the Kali Yuga is the Kalki. Kalki. The Kalki is the, per, is the new manifestation of Vishnu. So Vishnu is coming back. So just like the Jesus returns to the world kind of like story. Yeah. Vishnu, like I mentioned at the beginning, he always reincarnates. So his next avatar will be the Kalki avatar which will usher in the new Aeon. However, and this is a big however, this is not the tantric understanding necessarily of how the Aeon shifts. This is not necessarily the way that uh, I would understand it, per se. But it's a one way to understand. So I think it's a good way, also. But I think that they believe the Aeon well, the Aeon is predicted to be here in 2130. So that's the Hindu idea, is that the new Aeon of the Kalki, the Kalki has already been born, supposedly, in our time. But he, but the, new, the, the wheel of time will shift in 2130. So it, as I mentioned, the Kala Chakra Tantra predicts that the green Buddha, who's a Moga city, which means swift accomplishing, all, swift one who accomplishes everything, that's basically right. what his name means. Yeah. He, Tara, interestingly, green Tara is his consort. So one of the Mahavidyas is his consort, really. But, so he he will become the Buddha of the age. 
So in Buddhism, we also have a five point pattern and every ring is assigned a color. Green people, just for, if anyone's listening who knows like uh, Western magical color theory, just totally forget all of that for one moment. Buddhist color theory is quite different. Even I had to kind of like totally relearn from scratch. So green and shout out to Stella Q. Well, one of my good podcasting friends, she told me that the color stuff that I talked about with you one other time yes. was really yes. interesting. And she told it me really she realized it. Yeah. So green, true green, which is like a blue green in painting because that's what they would use woge um, or turquoise or tourmaline sometimes. Yeah, but they, they that is really a blue green, but that is green and green represents all the colors. So we think of black as representing all the colors, but no, in, in Tantra, it's really green. green. And green also represents, if you want to assign it an elemental, it's the wind, it's the air. The wind, ah. So it's really it's proper super, super interesting. It really is. And it's really quite different. I feel like there's a lot, like there's a lot of meat there. Yeah, it's very unique, mate. Very unique. So, yeah, I think that's why. I think that they are trying to turn the wheel of time prematurely. I think that they're trying to bring about their age, if you want to call it the age of Horus or whatever. I personally don't think it's the child. That's not my interpretation of the wheel turning. That's not what the prediction says in the Kala Chakra. It doesn't say it's all sunshine and rainbows and people like it actually predicts a tumultuous moment. But if you understand it through the Mahavidya system, and I will obviously give a spoiler once we get together eventually, I think that it will really be, I think it really will be a white pill for people. I don't think it will be the scary, terrifying thing, even if the goddess appears scary and terrifying, I don't really think it's, I don't think that they have the understand, like I feel like there's a pull component missing. And sometimes yeah. when I hear conspiracy people talking, like I love all of that. Like I love all those people. It's been an amazing journey to like learn all this alongside everyone else. Man, but sometimes, it no, it really is. But yeah, I, I know, I know. But I think sometimes they don't always have the occult background to understand all that we're seeing. And I don't necessarily understand all that we're seeing. I'm not trying to say that I do. But I, I think that there is an, another layer of meaning that we miss. You're doing a we... pretty good job, mate, uh, explaining um, this series to, to me and our listeners. So I beg to differ on that, mate. I think you are, you are incredible. Well, I um, really appreciate uh, the opportunity to this community, mate. You really are. Well, again, it's all—it's your platform, it's your show. I'm just honored to be like a part of it. Oh, thanks, mate. Thank you. But yeah, I think you know. I really think that they're trying to turn the wheel of time. I mean, to cut through all the bullshit. That's really what I think. I think they're trying to control it. I think they think they control the goddess because the next aeon is actually a is a goddess Aeon. I know Crowley predicted Go, goddess Aeon. Yes, I actually believe it is a goddess Aeon. 
personally. That's my yeah. personal opinion. My like, if you want my gin opinion, that's my real opinion. I'm not yeah. dancing around it. I really believe it's the goddess Aeon. I don't think it's the goddess anyone will expect. I don't think it's it's not, but it's also going to be a Christian Aeon. A Christian Aeon. Yes, because once we get up to Kether, I know I'm kind of giving like this uh, massive, um, what's it called, like a Easter egg. I'm trying to dangling it in front of people, but I yeah. really think that there's a lot of parallels between the resurrection story and the story of Shakti moving through the paths, battling all the inner and outer demons, and finally she emerges at the top. And I think that once she gets to the top, I think people will really see that there is something there that really parallels some of the Easter story and some yeah. of the resurrection story. Because to me, I mean, to me, it reminds of me. Maybe other people won't find it, but I do see that. And so maybe this is a good moment to bring in the bhakti, what we talked about a little bit before, which is devotional love. So bhakti is a really interesting concept. It's actually a tantric concept. But most people know bhakti through iskon like the hari krishnas like krishna uh, hari hari whatever you know at the airports yeah. in the 70s and um i'm sure they still are around and but most indians when they're not if they're not atheists they would approach god through bhakti which is devotional love meaning that people don't really have that concept here the most the closest concept is people who are uh, Pentecostal. So people who are very into Jesus, like very, very into Jesus, like they, they will say like that, they will say like, I give everything to God, whatever, like they, everything is like God's decision. That is Bhakti. Okay. Okay. So MI6 actually loved Bhakti. They loved ISKCON. They loved fu funding that whole like it's called the international bhakti movement it was all those gurus in the 70s and 80s who would promote like touch and love and some of the woodstock stuff too the free love that was a lot of yeah. like mixture with agape and bhakti and trying to i don't know they always try and subvert everything so things might start out with a totally different meaning but they always end up in this weird perverted meaning at the end but um so bhakti is how you approach Krishna, and it's largely how people approach um, Rama and Sita, who is the other very popular form of Vishnu. Yeah. And it is also how you approach Kali and the very ferocious mother goddesses. But you only do it for mother goddesses. You do not do it for just any random tribal village goddess. So would you... I'm sorry, mate. I was just going to say, no, no, no. If we do part male gods, then it's just this not nothing to do with them at all. Shiva does not respond. He, it's not really a Shaivite concept or right, okay. practice. It just he is just a turn. He is the supernal consciousness. He is the Godhead. He just he doesn't, re, you know, just it's like a you could say it's even a male and female thing. Okay. The goddess is the mother of the world. She responds when her devotees cry to, for help. God is focused on creating the universe and also reaching the top of the tree himself or staying at the top. Well, I should just say, Buddhists conceive of Shiva as existing in the highest God realm. So Shiva is like in the fourth 
realm of if you say it's heaven, he's in the fourth world or the fourth dimension of heaven. So it's the very, very top. But he has not ejected himself. That's how Buddhists conceive of it. Okay. Right, okay. Is it is at the highest level now? It's not but, the highest yeah. level, but it's the highest level that you will not return to the world as a mortal being. Shiva okay. has already conquered death. And because Shiva is time, he's, well, at least part of Shiva is time. Yeah. He, he's kind of eternal. He's not, he's meditating. His eyes are closed and his eyes are closed partly because Shakti cast a love spell on him and well it's not really a love spell but it is she so what happens is she prays to the god of lust whose name comma who has a bow and arrow he looks just like cupid he rides uh-huh. a, he rides a parrot okay a green parrot uh-huh. and he has and he has a wife whose name rati and she is the goddess of carnal knowledge so like kama sutra you could say she is that she is she's like the technique sexual technique that's really what she is right but you could also say she's the devotee of kama so she is kama's best student so she is her husband the god of lust she is his best student so she has uh extreme devotion to her husband so in that way you could also say she is the goddess of like clinging love like love yeah. that you will last through the ages. So Pavarti petitions Kama through a puja to find Shiva, who's obviously meditating on the cremation ground, and bring him home or to fall in love with her. Okay? Yeah. Kama goes out to the cremation ground and he shoots his magical love arrow at Shiva. Shiva is very annoyed with this thing that is happening and shiva does not really feel lust that's not really shiva's vice in the world so he opens his third eye and he incinerates the god of lust comma so comma is just a pile of ashes in this cremation ground yeah okay so that's a really important story i know it sounds like frivolous but it's actually a really important story because the goddess who's at the top of the tree, or who I've assigned to the top of the tree, she cannot be created without this story. So I'm just laying, I always try and do that. I always try and like layer the foundation with the things that will be important later. I know I take a while to get there, but I try. So, Jim, just sorry, sorry to interrupt. No, no, no. Would you say that this is? similar to what we what people call a true love it's similar to what people call true love true love yeah so comma because you if you remember last time we talked about the realm structure so the realm of enjoyment is called the comma datu meaning the pleasure realm yeah, yeah. so several layers of earth like the human realm several layers of heaven, the lower heavens, the lower heavens, not the higher heavens, but the lower heavens, and several layers of the upper hell. Those are actually one world, and that's Kamadatu. So even though it is Kamadatu, which is the pleasure world, Kama isn't, and his wife, Rati could be, you could say she is true love. You could say, because there's a lot more to that story that I just told, 
There's a whole thing where Rati has to then go back to Shakti and ask her, what is the ritual method to bring Kama back to life? Because the world can't really function without Kama. Like people won't procreate and stuff, right? So you can't keep birthing the world if, if yeah. no one's around to have sex. So it's a really, so, but he isn't really true love. He's really like pleasure and carnal love. But you could say because she's devotion, devoted to him, that yeah. she could be said to be true love. Okay. But, and this will be a lot more clear once we get higher too. Because we're still only at Yasod. Like I only made it to Yasod last time. So this time we'll go higher. But really, yes. I mean, you could say that because they, at the end of the day, Shakti and Shiva are really one thing. Prakriti and Purusha are really one thing. The right, like the right. conception is non-dual, right? There we divide the things into just like how the gods become multiple gods or God becomes multiple gods, and we understand it and we build the mandala around the central deity. We're just really what we're just doing as people or as tantrics is we're just trying to understand we're assigning meaning to different forces in the universe in order to better understand God. So we're just really doing what the Iranians were doing when they got introduced to the Greek dialectic. That's all yeah. we're really doing. We're just assigning different meanings to different faces and aspects of God in order to understand the whole better. Because human conception of things is very limited. We also have so much pressures in the real world. Like, not the real world, but you know what I mean. And yeah. it's very difficult. So we have to break it down in order to understand things better. And in order also to access them. And like I said, when we did, we spoke a little bit about Ishta Devatas, which is your inner deity. So most people have multiple deity practices that they do. Like I do a multiple deity practice, but we all have one Ishta. We all have our central deity. And it is, and if you're doing the 10 goddesses, you could have one, any of the 10 goddesses could be your Ishta Devata. Okay, yeah, yeah. Or it could be Shiva or it could be Ganesh. It could be any of them. Yeah. But the Mahavijas present a very distinct, understandable, um, anthropomorphized version of God. And they also can traverse through the three worlds. So even though the goddesses are essentially like the Godhead, just made worldly, they also have infernal or chthonic aspects. So they also go... So in one way of understanding, if you look at it through the tree, the Chipolithic tree, you could say that when the goddess descended from the first creation, she didn't fall on Malkuth. She fell on the sphere of the Chipolithic tree. So she fell in the lowest of the lowest hells. Oh, I... <laughs> so she has to climb all the way back up. And in Buddhism, we also assign a third tree. So a supernal tree. Supernal tree. That's a way to understand it. Another way that they describe it in Tantra Buddhism is the five Buddha crown. 
So five there are five Buddhas that are assigned to each color. So there's Akashobia, which is blue-black, Vairochana, who is white, Amitabha, who's red, Ratna Sambhava, who's yellow, and Amoga City, who's green. So there are many Buddhas, many deities who will wear a crown. And usually the Buddha that they belong to or in their conceptual ideas or their conceptual worlds. So every Buddha is assigned like a specific dimension or place. And so they will manifest as specific deities in the world, even though there's only really one Buddha at the end. And it's the, what we call Adi Buddha, who's the original primordial Buddha who appears like. The, yeah. It's just a Buddha that he appears like um, overweight. Uh, quote. So, so that's the, that is Maitreya. So the chubby Buddha who you see a lot in Chinese restaurants or Chinatown, yeah. that is Maitreya. So that will be the future Buddha. But the that is, Buddha. so that's the future Buddha. That's the Buddha that is coming, supposedly. Okay. Okay. But that is more of a Mahayana or a Sutra understanding. Okay. So it does exist in Tantra because Tantra, people often forget this as well. Tantric Buddhism and also Tantric Hinduism, they're just as reliant on the, the Orthodox texts. Like the Buddhism is reliant, Tantric Buddhism is reliant on sutras and Tantric Hinduism is just as reliant on, say, like the Vedas or the um, Puranas. Like they really rely on the Orthodox texts as well. They're not really separate. Like they are, and they say bad things about both. Each of them did like these discourses that are mean about the other one. And, you know, everything, they're always like that. It's a very discursive culture. Yeah, I, I think, yeah, like, it's like that. most religions, into, they're all slacking each other off. That's really what it is. Yeah. So, you know, but the Tantra is the spice. It's like the pepper and the salt you put on your food. Your yeah. main practice for most people, I'm not saying for anyone, and I'm not telling anyone what to do. For me, I know this is not true, but I'm going to say it anyway. For most people, their primary focus should be sutra or the Hindu equivalent. So say like the Puranas. So that's your really your, your basis. And for me, it is my ideological basis. I'm not saying it's not. It really is. However, like we discussed the last time, it is much easier to climb the tree through wrathful methods. And it's much easier to cut through worldly bullshit with wrathful methods. And you're not wrong, mate. No, it, it's just, I'm, I mean, I'm just saying that it's just the truth. So yeah, like, I just want to say the truth and, you know, I want to give people, I don't want to dance around the idea. Yeah. Yeah. And the reality is tantric practices. I, it is sorcery. Okay, I don't want to run away from it. It is sorcery, but it's also not sorcery. It's greater than sorcery because it's not just doing little spells to accomplish one thing. It is all the accumulated recitations. It is your daily practice. It is when you're like, for me, I get my little alerts for my Tibetan calendar and it says, you have to do this puja on this day or today is a great day for a homa, which is the tantric version of the fire sacrifice. 
Right. So that's quite uh, it's interesting now. You get like the notifications. I mean, it just you can anyone can download the app, right? All right, it's with an app, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, but it's but it's all of the things that you do, and it's also the way you think. It's also the way you speak to people. It's also the way you conduct yourself. But yeah. those are more inner things. So I'm not trying to say people have to emulate me. Uh, don't emulate me. I'm just saying they. once you get deeper into Tantra or Tantra practice, you will realize that the more things that the, the way you interact with reality affects reality. And that yeah. we're a lot more co-creative than we're not. So I think it's, you know, I think it's really important to, um, we, so when we do want, how should I describe it? So, sorry. Hello, man. Uh, No, I I lost my train of thought for one moment, but I'm fine now. Okay, I've sent you a message as well. Oh, okay. Oh, I see. I see. Okay. Yes. Let's call it now and let's do a fourth if you want to. Oh, mate, I would love to see you. Okay. Yeah, I think, uh, if you want to finish explaining what he was just going to uh, box off for me, please, Albert. Oh, was, I just, what yeah. I wanted to just say is that Tantra cannot be broken down into small, rich, smaller ritual components. And like, just you say Wicca, okay? So say it's not just lighting candles in a specific color on a yeah. specific day. Tantra is so much more than that. Okay, so yes, you do do pujas. Yes, you do do homas. Yes, you do do if you're a Hindu in Nepal, you will do Pashu Bali, which is animal sacrifice. But you're not, that isn't Tantra. That's just elements of Tantra. What is really amazing about Tantra is Tantra takes the Vedic rituals. Tantra takes the Iranian rituals. Tantra takes the tribal rituals, all the rituals that existed. And they looked at it and they said, what are the base components? What can we do to really make this work? And they remixed it in a logical grammar. And then they pretty much disseminated that. And that's what Tantra became. So Tantra is not just the ritual method, but is the whole system of philosophy, ontology, epistemology, reality. So you have to really think of it in those terms. You cannot. So that's what I just want to say. So yes, it is magic. Yes, we do do sorcery and all of that. And it's important and we need to know how to defend ourselves and do whatever we need to do to, you know, climb the tree in a good way of being prescient of other people's will and karma and all of that. Okay. But it's not, it's not just that. So I just want to point that out, but that's a good place to end it too. Nice one, mate. Uh, Jid, it's just, uh, it really is uh, an incredible uh, pantheon. I didn't realise, I've said this before, I've probably said it on every episode when we finished, but I didn't realise how vast it is. Um, I think the Tantric Pantheon is probably the most, If I mean, I personally find it to be the most living because it's been practiced consecutively for 1800 years. Wow. It's not something that people had to reconstruct. It never went away. So 
speak. It's really interesting for people who are really interested in living traditions. Whatever you think, if you think India is backwards, if you think Tantra is like old fashioned, that's all okay. There's, you know, there's no, I'm not trying to convert or anything like that. But I think that it really is another aspect of the story that people don't know. And narrative has so much power. And oh, it's such a beautiful you know, story. You're not wrong, mate. You're not wrong. I think uh, more than anything, Jen, it's the way you're explaining and you're sharing your knowledge. Well, I, again, thank, thank you, you so me. much, General Lee. I appreciate it so much. Everybody to like and support the show. Um, Thanks, mate. And support Thanks. General Lee. It's a great show. Yeah. And I've loved all the shows you've had lately. So. Oh, nice one, mate. And we've also started additional podcasts with the friend Lux. I know, and that's going to be fucking epic. Oh, mate. I've just released um, episode one with Alan Greenfield, mate. Oh, that's going to be amazing. I'll listen to that tonight. I'll be listening to that tonight. Nice one, thank you. And episode two, which we recorded, was with L.A. Missoula. Okay, well, there's another one. So everybody sub oh. to that. Put it on your yes, RF nice right mate. now. <laughs> nice one, mate. Uh, Jim, before you go, uh, would you like to let everybody know where they go, you please, sir? Sure. I'm at, at Wukong Reborn, W-U-K-O-N-G Reborn. And also, I just did another episode on a different podcast called Union of Unknowns. That's kind of oh. my podcast family of origin in a way. But, like, um, I'm not a part of it at all. I'm just, like, they ask. Stella Q asked me to come on and I did and so thank you to all of that whole group of cast quality members who, yeah, so, yeah so if you want to check me out listen to that obviously we'll probably do a fourth one and oh, definitely. listen to all the old ones because I think that they all build on each other yes yes definitely um, if you could do us a favor little mate send us a link to that to show you did um Oh, it's on my Twitter. So if you want to find it, it's on my feed. Yeah. Right. I'll check that out, mate, later on. But, uh, Jed, as always, mate, uh, it's been a pleasure speaking to you. Um, I'm truly honored to to have you on. Thank you so much. And I really appreciate it again. And it's always fucking amazing to do this. Just have a conversation that's, you know, interesting, cool. Yeah. Nice one, mate. Uh, I'll stop recording now, mate. But uh, okay, really sounds good. Speaking to you again soon, mate. Nice one. Thank you. Six-year-old child with this blank, pale, emotionless face. The blackest eyes, the devil's eyes. You take the red pill, you stay in Wonderland, and I show you how deep the rabbit hole goes.